I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is mass incarceration. We begin our series on the topic by setting up some helpful information you'll want to refer to in future episodes. We discuss some statistics regarding our criminal justice system, compare our efforts with those of other countries in regards to criminal justice, and begin the conversation of some steps we can take to help our country's systems. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, today we're going to be talking about mass incarceration. Garen, let's jump right into it. What is mass incarceration? Mass incarceration is the systematic locking up of a massive number of Americans, most especially people of color. It is largely driven by the war on drugs. They're not completely synonymous. The war on drugs is probably the largest component of mass incarceration that we're going to be spending time talking about, but it's bigger than just the war on drugs. There's a lot to it. There are these reels that sometimes I'll watch on Instagram where people will splash paint up against a canvas. And at first it just looks chaotic and you don't quite know what picture is emerging. And then as you watch, a picture starts to emerge and by the end it it starts to make sense. And it feels like that's a little bit what this episode and actually the next couple episodes that we're going to do on mass incarceration is going to be like. Because there's lots of aspects of it and they don't all create a seamless picture until you start to really understand more of what's really happening. And then this picture is going to emerge and I think it's going to be a compelling picture. But it's a complex subject to start to talk about. So today we're going to be talking mostly about the foundation that we really kind of need to build to lay some groundwork before we can really get into the history of how we got here. A really brief overview is that America locks up way more people than any other nation on earth, especially than any other developed nation. We lock up white people at about twice the rate of other developed nations, and we lock up black and brown people at five times the rate that we lock up white people. So 10 times the rate of other developed nations. And this has not always been the case. It started in the 1970s, around 1972. In 1972, there were about 200,000 people incarcerated in America. And now the number is up to 2.3 million. Okay, so, I mean, I hear you say those numbers, but it's hard for me to even put in perspective. Is that a lot? Yeah, so it's a lot. And the impact of mass incarceration goes way beyond just those numbers. And this is all stuff we're going to get into. This is just the brief overview. So we're going to go in a lot more detail over this. So I don't want to get into the weeds yet. But then the other aspect of mass incarceration is that it is a tool that has been used deliberately, historically. And we're going to get into the history and the quotes. It's a tool that's been used to suppress the black and brown community. But really, that's something we're going to get into more in the next episode and the one after. So this episode, first thing I want to do is splash a bunch of paint up against the canvas and give you a bunch of facts that begin to paint a picture of what mass incarceration looks like and what the war on drugs looks like now before we go back in in more detail. Okay. So the American criminal justice system holds 2.3 million people in 1,800 state prisons, 110 federal prisons, and 1,700 juvenile correctional facilities. There are 19 million Americans who have been convicted of a past felony. There are 77 million Americans who have a criminal record. And there are 113 million American adults who have someone in their immediate family who has a criminal record. The U.S. has only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. Wow, that seems... Like a pretty big deal. Our incarceration rate is astronomical compared to other nations, and we consider it to just be normal because it's all we've ever known or encountered, especially for white Americans living in the suburbs. We don't see that what we're doing as a nation is actually far from normal. And we're going to get into 
more as we go through this series. We're going to get into the fact that it's not just abnormal, but it's counterproductive. It is devastating to black and brown communities, and it's incredibly costly. Like it's not benefiting literally anyone. So now, mass incarceration, I already said, a lot of it comes from the war on drugs. And so getting into that a little bit, the war on drugs is the largest driver of mass incarceration now. Most new incarcerations since the beginning of the war on drugs, most of the growth in the prison population has come through the war on drugs. And right now, about 40% of federal prisoners and about one in five overall prisoners are in prison on drug crimes. But usually drugs will receive a smaller sentence than violent crimes and other forms of crime. So the overall share of people who have a criminal record from drug crimes is a larger share than just represented by that one in five. Can you give like a 30,000 foot view of the war on drugs? I mean, I know we're going to go in it, but when someone hears that, I mean, most people my age probably can't explain exactly what that is. I mean, I don't know if I can. Yeah. But what's like the the big picture? So so to be super brief, and we're going to go more into this, but the war on drugs started really during the Reagan and Nixon administrations. Started with tough on crime rhetoric in the Nixon administration then really picked up in the Reagan administration. But it was a deliberate effort to create a system to replace Jim Crow that would continue and perpetuate a racial caste system, but it had to be done in a way that was officially colorblind. No longer could politicians officially run on racist and segregationist platforms, but they didn't just suddenly have a change of heart where they you know, loved and cared about black and brown people. And so they created this alternate system that could maintain the racial status quo but without using official segregation or racist language. The Southern strategy, right? The Southern strategy and the Southern manifesto. And this is all stuff that we'll talk about in more detail. Okay. But right now, we're splashing paint against the wall. Yep. Yep. That seems like a pretty big deal, though. <laughs> I know we were just splashing paint, but that's a... It's a big claim. That's a huge thing, because that's our our parents' generation. Yeah. Is, you know, we hear a lot about Reagan and Nixon, and so... Yeah, it's a big claim, and we're we're going to have to back it up, and we will. Yeah. I mean, I guess there has to be a reason. I mean, it's not like people just got more inherently genetically violent and apt to, you know, a yeah. disposition towards drugs. I mean, that doesn't just naturally yeah. come out like a huge jump like that. There's got to be a reason. Mm-hmm. Your parents' generation, Reagan was president when I was in middle school. I feel old. You're not old. <laughs> he was, My he parents meant, are old. He meant Nixon when he said that part. Continue. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> So spending on jails reached $87 billion in 2015, which is up more than 10 times from 1975. And that's not the cost of mass incarceration. That's just the cost of prison and jails. The overall cost, because you have to factor in court costs and lawyers and the loss of income of not having people in the economy, contributing to the economy. And then there's all kinds of secondary and tertiary effects of mass incarceration. So so the the overall, the direct costs are just like $200 billion a year. But the actual impact on the economy is even more than that. Garen, maybe this is clear for everyone, but the prison system, is that money, like the, the government gets that money? Where I'm assuming it's like a... I don't know. It, it would weird for it to be like a profited industry. There are right? private prisons. They're not a majority of prisons. Most prisons are public government run. Okay. But there are also private prisons that are run for profit. Okay. But it's a combination of federal prisons, state prisons, local jails, and some of, I think all of those slices are private, but most are public. So most of it is tax money yeah. from citizens going to pay for this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if current trends continue, one-third of young black men are projected to serve time in prison at some point in their lifetimes. And in D.C., just kind of showing how much worse it even is in some local areas, in D.C., young black men, about three-quarters of them are projected to serve prison at some point. And in the poorest neighborhoods, it's nearly 100%. Wow. The U.S. incarceration rate is six to ten times higher than other industrialized nations. For example, in Germany, there are 93 prisoners per 100,000. In America, the rate is 750 
but in America, among black people, it is fourteen hundred, and in some states, in the state of Texas where we are, it's almost two thousand. Wow! So, I mean, twenty times the rate of many other industrialized nations. The other industrialized nations are mostly in the range of low hundreds to like less than a hundred. So let's talk about other nations for a second then, just to show a bigger picture of how we fit in with the rest of the world. The way we do crime and punishment is not the way most of the world does it. In other countries around the world, first-time drug offenses would typically merit no more than six months in jail, if jail time is imposed at all. But in America, our typical mandatory sentences for first-time drug offenses in federal court is five to ten years. In Germany, the way, the whole mentality of how prisons operate and what their purpose is, is completely different. The way that everything looks in Germany is more compassionate and more rehabilitative with a purpose of rehabilitation. So not only do they incarcerate people at a rate that's like an eighth of what we do in America, but prisons in Germany actually maintain dignity for the people who are there. Hmm. In Germany, for instance, prisoners have their own rooms with doors that lock from the inside. So they actually have the ability and privacy. They can't be viewed from the outside. So they actually have privacy and safety in their own space. They have kitchens that they can use to cook their own food. They have like silverware, forks, knives, and spoons, which, I mean, prisons in America, that would be crazy because it'd be like, well, they could use all those things as weapons. But the system, by bestowing dignity, it creates a completely different culture in the prisons there where the concerns that we have for safety and preventing violence in American prisons almost don't apply because the whole system is different. In Germany, prison guards have two years of training and there's a lot of focus on rehabilitation. Prison guards celebrate when prisoners are released and reintroduced into society and they grieve when there is recidivism. When prisoner, They feel like it's a failure if a prisoner comes back into prison. And then you compare that to the American system. In the American system, we treat prisoners like animals. They are given no dignity. They have to, in many cases, use a toilet that is openly visible to the outside. They have cells that they can't lock to have any kind of privacy. They can't have, in many cases, possessions the way that they can in Germany, having their own space as protected. And then prisons in America are oftentimes deliberately located hundreds of miles away from population centers, making it near impossible for families to come visit on a regular basis. Versus in Germany, they deliberately place prisoners near to their families so that they can make it more possible for people who are locked up to stay connected with the outside world. I almost think like when you say they're given no dignity, I feel like the way that is shaped I'm just trying to think myself as a child growing up, what I was told about prison in general and stuff. I feel like the way that we shape it is that if you're a criminal, you've given your dignity away to be treated like that, mm-hmm. which is like super different than, I mean, you know, trying mm-hmm. to rehabilitate someone or trying to be compassionate in any way. It's almost like we're taught those people don't get compassion. They're evil. They're all, once you're a criminal, you're always a criminal. Mm-hmm. and there's no going back and so you're just mm-hmm. it's kind of like this weird no one says that but it's like one of those inherent things I don't know yeah that's the mentality right so let's take that head on and talk about the compassion that we ought to have for prisoners and the fact that they still are image bearers of God with dignity and there's two aspects that I need to talk about and, and really just stepping back I should not have to make an argument for the fact that people in prison are still people and still have should have dignity. That should just be an intuitive thing, but it's actually kind of in our culture a little bit of a revolutionary claim. But we're going to talk about two aspects of it. First is, I just want to paint a picture of the biblical view that we should have towards prisoners, which to many people, it will be shocking for you to find out that the biblical view is actually super positive and empathetic towards people who are locked up. And then the second thing I want to present is just a little bit of like the psychology and the mental health issues that ought to draw us towards having compassion towards people who are locked up, especially towards people who are locked up for substance abuse. So painting a picture of 
the biblical view. For those of our listeners who consider yourselves to be Christians or under the authority of the Bible, this is something that ought to weigh very heavily. Like you ought to allow what I'm about to read to change your worldview if, if your worldview doesn't line up with this. Like you yourself profess that this is authority that you're under. So like let this shape you. And then even for those who don't believe that the Bible is authoritative, I think this is ancient wisdom that you should know about and consider and weigh. I'm a little afraid of what you're about to read. I'm going to read some stuff that does not fit with the American system. So Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember those who are in prison as if you were bound with them, and those who are mistreated as if you were suffering with them. Isaiah 61, in a really linchpin passage of the Old Testament, says, and it's talking about like this Messiah who was anticipated to come and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to the prisoners. That passage is the passage that Jesus chose to open his ministry on earth. That's what he quoted in the synagogue when he basically launched his public ministry a passage from the Old Testament announcing, among other things, a compassion for the poor, and among that, freedom for prisoners and captives. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus, uh, in this like super key critical passage that gets quoted a lot, he describes people who come to him and they're like, hey, we did all these things, we're in, we, we're believers. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And he says, the, the marks of the people who thought that they knew him and didn't really. One of those marks was that I was in prison and you didn't come to visit me. It just to, Are these verses talking about people in prison? It's not like someone, you know, this Christianese language of like they're in, they're held a prisoner of their sin. And No, like these are verses talking about actual, like literal prisoners. I mean, it's listing them among the other categories of oppressed or downtrodden people. So it's, it's not talking in spiritual terms, it's talking in, in more literal terms. So Jesus says, and you'll see that here, he says, I was an immigrant and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then I don't have this written down, but just from memory, it's something like they replied and said, when did we do all these things? When did we see you sick and go visit you? And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me. In that list where Jesus is painting the picture of what it looks like to actually know him is that you cared about me when I was in prison. Like how much does that cut against this supposedly Christian nation, this claim that we like to make? And like we don't live out the compassion that Jesus clearly had for prisoners. In Psalm 68, God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out prisoners with singing. Psalm 146, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. But then even just more broadly, prisoners were fairly rare in the Bible because in ancient Near Eastern cultures, prisons were just too expensive to be very practical. So they didn't have mass incarceration. They couldn't afford it because everyone's just trying to survive. So there were prisons, but they were pretty rare. But then think about how many prisoners there are in the Bible and realize, I'm just going to list off a bunch of stories of prisoners in the Bible real quick and just realize every single one of these stories the prisoners are painted sympathetically. So Joseph, Samson, Jeremiah, Jehoiachin, Mordecai, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Micaiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Silas, Peter, John, and the avenged servant in the parable of the unmerciful servant. All of these prisoners in the Bible painted with sympathetic light. And there's basically no depictions, no negative depictions of prisoners in the Bible. So the biblical weight is not on the side of we should animalize and despise prisoners and almost like punish them with this shame of our despising them. That is not the view that we should have towards prisoners. And if that is, then for Christians, I would just say directly, you should repent of that and run away from that and pray that God would give you compassion. But for everyone, I would call you to rethinking your view of how you perceive prisoners. Well, but here's something that's also interesting. And 
Hebrews 13, 1 and 3. It talks about, and you read it, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated. I think it's interesting that in that same sentence, it's talking about the imprisoned and those who are mistreated. I think that God in his sovereignty knows that a lot of times imprisonment is synonymous with injustice and and oppression. Mm -hmm. I I think that's the the key element that even ties into mass incarceration, Mm -hmm. knowing that people are falsely imprisoned. Oh, yeah. And out of the many people that you mentioned and that you referenced, most of them were falsely imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And so false imprisonment, which is a huge element of mass incarceration, is something that was common even then, Mm -hmm. even though the statistics of people in prison were much smaller than where we are now. Mm -hmm. But the God of justice knows that imprisonment a lot of times has to do with mm-hmm. oppression and marginalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just doing the math in my head, like as a normal per- person who's hearing you guys talk about this stuff and has my upbringing of like criminals are bad, drugs are bad, criminals do drugs, they're like the worst. And then I'm hearing you say that it seemed like this wasn't that big of an issue. I would say... You know, did they have drugs in the Bible? Like, were they, you know what I mean? But if I'm doing the math in my head correctly, I'm going to tie it always back to the claim that you made on the war on drugs and how significant that is. Because in my brain, if I'm thinking, okay, drugs are bad, that's what I've been taught, but I'm living in a post-war on drugs world. I really want to hear more about (laughs) that. I know we're going to later, but Mm -hmm. there's got to be, that has to be Mm -hmm. such a huge, complex thing that I don't think people realize. Yeah. Can I just say that when you're talking about drug usage and and individuals using drugs, one, drug use in prisons is a whole operation. And America, who is supposed to be the number one country in the universe. We are the number one country (laughs) in the universe. (laughs) We can't get a hold of, we can't get control of drugs. The war on drugs starts with not allowing it to come into this country and not allowing it to be produced. However, the FBI, basically under COINTELPRO, put drugs in certain communities. Mm-hmm. And so if we're doing a war on drugs, why, why are we even letting it come into the country? Mm-hmm. One. And two, how is it so prevalent in the prison system, in the penal system? It's almost like we got a war on drugs, but... We're benefiting and profiting off the off the war on drugs with people, with bodies, but also the drug the drugs themselves. Mm-hmm. It's it. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, yeah, it almost seems like we call it the war on drugs, right? Right, but it's actually going to war on people. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're not. We should be declaring war on the actual problem, but we're declaring war on like yeah, a and a type of symptom. people because uh, yeah, because certain drugs and certain people are not going to be criminalized, but mm-hmm. certain drugs and certain people are. So drugs, dr- the drug of choice, or the, the drugs that are accessible to minority communities versus the prescription drugs and opioids and that type of thing that's more accessible to white suburbanites, that's a total different, like, two ends of the spectrum of criminalization. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've gone over in this show before where it's not like white people don't use drugs as much as black people. And, you know, black people are like, they're the ones that use drugs the most. And so that's why that there's more of them in prison. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's studies that show, if not, maybe the opposite, actually. Yeah. The white people generally are higher, have more family wealth and higher income. And so sometimes because of that, just the market powers will drive white people to purchase different types of drugs in some cases. Yeah, but let's come back to that because right now you had asked a question that I want to come back to about our drugs in the Bible. And just kind of, there's a really cool, interesting passage that deals fairly directly with that. So, I mean, the quick answer is not really. The biggest corollary was alcohol. Alcohol certainly existed, but there's not mention of much else in the way of drugs. But looking at the Bible's treatment of alcohol, a really instructive passage is Proverbs 31. 
there's a passage that's written as advice to a king. And it, the name of the king was Lemuel. And it says, it is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink, drink, uh, to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. So basically saying, hey, you have a position of responsibility. You should avoid substance abuse because you got a job to do. And your job that you have to do is to help the oppressed and protect their rights. And then it goes on to say, let beer be for those who are perishing and wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So it doesn't, in saying like, hey, you got a job to do, you got responsibility, it doesn't then demonize people who struggle with substances, but rather in a, in a way, it kind of like, it kind of makes sense for people who are perishing and in anguish that they, they it doesn't actually advocate alcohol for them, but, it's, but in a way it makes sense that, okay, that's going to be something that people who are anguish in anguish and perishing are going to use. You should try to avoid it. And it says, and it goes on to say, instead, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So the picture I take from that is I think believers and just people who, who aren't trying to cope with massive amounts of trauma, and we're going to get into trauma and its relation to drugs in a minute. Yeah. But people who aren't trying to cope with massive amounts of trauma, we ought to try to avoid substances or for in the case of alcohol, drink responsibly in order not to be led by substances into a mental state where we're not able to accomplish our goal, which is to love and help people around us. But there, are, there's no stone throwing here at people who struggle. And that's exactly what we need to talk about next is the compassion that we ought to have for people who are struggling with trauma and trying to cope with it. So most people who struggle with drugs, and I think especially for opioids and drugs that kind of numb pain, most people who struggle with those are people who are struggling with the effects of trauma. So let's talk about trauma for a second. Trauma raises the body's fight or flight instinct and it causes neurochemical called cortisol and a release of adrenaline. And adrenaline has the effect of encoding memories. Whenever you go through something traumatic, you remember it really well. I can remember my earliest childhood memories tend to be moments where I had a lot of adrenaline, either because it was something really exciting or really scary. And that's because adrenaline actually helps encode memories. And cortisol raises the body's fight or flight instinct. It'll actually increase the body's heart rate. Cortisol will if you have trauma, you actually can get to the point where you have a higher resting heart rate. Like the body is constantly more hypervigilant, more aware of its surroundings. This all makes sense to some degree. Imagine that you are in a hunter-gatherer society and your tribe gets attacked by another tribe. All of a sudden you hear a war cry and then you see like arrows flying and your, your village is getting attacked. Like you need adrenaline because you need to be able to go into fight or flight mode. And then you also, in the future, after that war, that battle's done, you need your body to constantly be more ready to prevent that from happening again. And so from then on, anytime you hear something that sounds remotely like a war cry, your body's immediately going to be ready to defend. This happened to me, I, I went through, I was in a car accident. And now anytime I'm driving, in a situation that's kind of similar to how I had gotten into that car accident, all of a sudden I'm like hypervigilant. This has somewhat tie into like even veterans that have PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because what and veterans, that's a good illustration of where it's going next is that when you go through repeated trauma or trauma that's intense past a certain point, the body no longer is just triggered by that war cry or that similar trigger but your body can actually get to the point where it is continually vigilant, continually anxious. It can lead to generalized anxiety. So people who have been through a lot of trauma will just always have a resting heart rate that's elevated, sometimes 20 or 30 beats per minute higher heart rate. Imagine how you feel when you're really anxious about a test result or about something that just makes you really nervous. And imagine that being 24-7, your entire life. You cannot stop feeling anxious about that. And for some people in our audience that will struggle with anxiety, and I mean, 
this is something that hits close to home for a lot of people. And, and we have compassion for those who struggle. I struggle with anxiety mm-hmm. and depression. And so yep. I am fortunate to be able to have certain prescription medications that help me with that. But then let's talk about the fact that poor communities may not have the health care or the access and resources to get the exactly. the help that they need. And self-medication is, is real. Yep. So then you have these people who have been through trauma. And this is not just black and brown people. This, the people who are in mass incarceration, there's a big overlap between the war on drugs and mass incarceration in black and brown communities. But right here, the problem is even broader. It's like poor communities in general are going to struggle more with substance abuse because of a lack of health care. And then you take traumatized people who feel continually anxious and don't know how to cope with that. And they don't have a system that supports them. And then here's this way, here's the drugs become like, only option for relief from that anxiety if we don't provide mental health resources to help people who need help. But think about it like this also. We know, I I can think of people who have children who have uh, struggled with drug use and the compassion that they will have for their children, their nieces, their nephews, Mm -hmm. to want to get them the help that they need. But then there's a disconnect when you're thinking about these criminalized populations of people, just criminalization and how you can have no empathy and compassion for them having a story, a backstory, a mental health issue potentially. Think about Dylan Dylan Roof and how in white serial killers or murderers, high profile, where the news media always goes to their mental health, they were bullied any excuse to empathize with someone who goes into a church and kills a bunch of people or who has done committed heinous acts versus mm-hmm. there's a black man on the run and, <laughs> you know, some crazy mugshot or a black child that's been murdered by the police or brutalized by the police. Well, he used marijuana, Botham Jean, for one. He They, they found, you know traces of marijuana in his blood, but he was at home mm-hmm. eating a bowl of ice cream, minding mm-hmm. his business when somebody walked into his home and killed him. Yeah, or even even if he was cause, I mean, there's a lot of black people who, even if he wasn't just innocent eating right. a bowl of ice cream, if you're taking somebody who, like, they don't share the backstory of how many black and brown people have come from a situation where they had parents who had to work multiple minimum wage jobs growing up and so they didn't have parental influence and then white conservatives oftentimes will blame the black and brown community for the, well they should have parented their kids better while not recognizing the the trauma that that system produces of kids who are struggling with food insecurity growing up not having ac- enough access to to good and healthy food or living in formerly redlined ghettos where the population density is like 15 times higher in many cases than the surrounding white communities. Like you take white people and stuff 15 times as many of them into the spaces where we live and you're going to see an increase in trauma because just having no privacy ever and having like population be overly dense is going to cause problems and issues in any demographic. And then there's just this lack of compassion for recognizing the humanity of people who then in response to trauma with a lack of healthcare resources are going to turn to drugs. Well, and also think about how drugs have been criminalized when throughout history there have been drugs of choice between middle class and wealthy social classes versus poor and impoverished social classes. So back in the day, it was nothing for white people to be walking around with some form of substance in their pocket watches mm-hmm. and and just whip it out and snort it or whatever. Yeah, cocaine and Coca-Cola. It, right. But black people and indigenous people smoking cannabis is only bad because they the system made it bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because now America is benefiting and profiting 
it's benefited and profited off of black people who have gone to prison for weed and petty drug offenses. But now it benefits and profits and has become big business. Cannabis has become big business. And people who are, there are people who still are in prison for petty drug offenses for the same drugs that America now benefits and profits off of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine black people and indigenous people being able to profit off of selling marijuana? Because that's what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. We, ha- you know, they, were, the they may have been selling that. marijuana on the street. And go to prison, but now you sell it in a dispensary, and it's, it romanticizes, and you know it makes like jazz makes makes a lady out of it, mm-hmm. you know. And and you know, jazz music was bad, 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 bad until they took it and made a lady. It, it, it's this appropriation. Oh, we're gonna do it, but we're gonna make it classy. Yeah, it's still the same drug. And mm-hmm. I, I think something you said, like even I keep we we're probably gonna hit this every episode that we talk about this, but compassion, and we can kind of overlook that as like, you should have compassion for people. But it's like, I wonder what you really think, like probably a good exercise for you that if you're listening to this is when you read a story or you watch something on the news, no matter what the race of the person is, like I wonder what you think about that person as the story is being told about them, whether they're white, black, brown, and they, and they do mention drugs or they mention a criminal. I wonder what your brain starts to think of that person as because I would imagine in most cases it's a, you don't really think of it as a person. You think of them as a problem. And you don't see drugs as the issue. You see that person as the issue. Mm-hmm. And then which causes you to not have compassion on that. You don't see them as a human. Mm-hmm. Like you don't actually see them as a person that is hurting. It's almost like we see them as like this inherently evil person that only wants to do bad things. Mm -hmm. Our culture has given us a license to despise people who use drugs and prisoners. And that is something our culture made up that is not present in other nations in the world, was not present in the past in our nation, is not present in the Bible. And it is super harmful and counterproductive. And And it's harmful and counterproductive not only to that person, but to our economy. Yeah. Like even if you're not a Christian and you don't have, or let's say you just or you just don't like people and for whatever reason and you're not going by some authority that's telling you to love people. I would think even from a selfish perspective, yes. you know, I want to be able to make money and do things in the world and I want our country to be great. Well, it's like we're preventing that mm-hmm. from happening from not seeing people as people. Yeah, that's crazy. If our criminal justice system operated like other industrialized industrialized nations that actually in many cases have better results and lower recidivism rates, we could literally save over $150 billion a year, which would be enough money that we could, I mean, that's about the amount of money that would be required to eliminate poverty. That's That's unbelievable. I mean, that's so much money that I think it goes over... People say it's like I don't. What do you do with 150 billion? Yeah, you can, you're telling me you can eliminate poverty over the course of time, just in general. But for that's, about 150 billion, that's crazy. A year. For the like, amount why of money, wouldn't, why wouldn't? And like, that's just, and that's a great question. Literally, why wouldn't we do that? Well, and we're going to get into the history. We literally turned in the the start of the war on drugs. We defunded public housing and other housing programs for the poor, and redirected that money to the construction of prisons, making prisons the nation's number one housing program for the urban poor. Hmm. And we could switch it back if we wanted to, but it would require like would. a will and a compassion that is not currently present in our politics. But the thing is, is that our system benefits off of poverty because it fuels, we use it to fuel prisons, and it's, it's a labor force. Mass incarceration and convict leasing are so completely tied together Mass incarceration produces a labor force in privatized prisons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, like firefighters who work for, what is it, like a couple dollars a day? Right. Like convict firefighters who risk their lives working for a couple dollars a day that the the state can use. And they do it because it's just a way to get outside and it's better than just being locked in a cell. But it becomes like this perverse incentive for the nation. Yeah. But let's get into the fact real quick that the war on drugs is fundamentally unwinnable. 
There's no way we ever. It's a failed program from the beginning. Like you're saying, we can't. There's no way drugs? we could ever eliminate drugs. Just from an economics perspective, follow this for a second. There's no way we could win. So what happens? Let's say America overnight had this huge success, and we caught half of the drug dealers in the nation all at once in one night. What would happen? Well, what would happen is all of a sudden drugs would become more rare. And supply and demand in economics is this principle that basically says whenever there's a lower supply, less of something, the value goes up. It gets bid up kind of like in an auction. Like when something's rare, it's worth more. Right. I mean, the illustration I used for this once before on, on this podcast was toilet paper during 2020. It yeah. became super <laughs> rare and everybody wanted toilet paper. Right. Yeah. right? Um, but I mean, this is what happens with any kind of scarcity. So if drugs became more scarce, all of a sudden the value of drugs skyrockets. And then any drug dealers who are still operating all of a sudden have much higher profit margins, more money to reinvest, more money to build their programs, more money to recruit with. And then also there's new incentives for more people to sell drugs because all of a sudden the price and the profit margins double. So it's a fundamental unwinnable war because the better you do at winning the war on drugs, the higher the prices go and the more incentive there is for people to sell drugs. So the fact that we try to solve the drug crisis on the supply side is fundamentally unwinnable. What we need to do is treat it on the demand side by helping people who are tempted to use drugs to become healthy, to re-enter into society and to have healthy ways to cope with their pain and their trauma. And really what I'm describing, we need to treat drugs as a mental health problem and not a criminal justice problem. That's like backwards than what it is right now. But we do treat it as a mental health problem for white people. For opioids, yeah. Yeah, we don't. We don't for black people and brown people, indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So the, we already have that set up, just not for marginalized people groups. Yeah. In Switzerland, they did a program where they treated it as a mental health problem. And I don't completely understand, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. I don't completely understand how they set it up. But basically, they started offering heroin-assisted treatment where they actually gave heroin to heroin addicts who had proven that they had tried to quit for multiple years and not been able to quit. And the government facilitated a treatment program that gave heroin in a controlled manner that also kind of came with like some therapeutic steps that people had to go through. And they saw drug overdose deaths drop by 64%, HIV infections drop by 84%, and home thefts dropped by 98%. And the Swiss prosecute 75% fewer opioid-related drug cases. That's crazy. Us. So switching, That's crazy. Yeah, switching to a mental health perspective that doesn't just... Well, because think about it. When you take a drug-addicted person who's trying to cope with... has an unhealthy way of coping with anxiety and pain, and then you lock them in a prison, take away their dignity, they may be sexually assaulted in prison... And then they get out of prison. And all of a sudden, now they can't vote. They, in many states, can't drive. They can lose their license. They lose access to food stamps, housing assistance. They probably can't get a job because other than maybe a minimum wage job because a lot of jobs have the checkbox where if you have a felony conviction, they won't hire you. And then courts and other parts of the legal justice system will garnish wages. So even minimum wage checks are partially garnished so that they have even less money. And then they have to make all these like probation and parole hearings or they can get go back to prison if they, if they miss appointments that they may not have money to. There's literally people in prison now because they didn't have money to pay the bus fare to their parole meeting. So we basically release people from prison and then continue to punish them and shame them for their criminal record in a way that takes somebody who already was struggling with trauma and now they have no legal way to make an income other than probably to use or sell drugs, like to continue to numb the pain in an unhealthy way or sell drugs. Mm. And compare that to other countries where they have much lower recidivism rates and the way they accomplish that is by helping people get jobs and helping them get back tied in with their family and taking away the shame and stigma of drug use and turning it more into like a mental health problem so that people receive compassion rather than demonization. And it actually works better and leads to better results and lower economic costs 
The other factor to bring into all this is the American war on drugs has massively destabilized South and Central America. Our entire hemisphere is struggling because of our folly in the war on drugs. The cartels in Mexico make most of their money from American drugs, and they use much of that to buy guns that then is used to terrorize the Mexican population in the places where the cartels are strong. Many Central and South American countries, there's a huge market for drugs that leads to organized crime that is fueled by the drug war and the high prices of drugs that come from the drug war. If we in America changed our mentality, legalized drugs, but in a way that was regulated and required steps towards treatment and mental health and taxed marijuana sales and used that money to fund rehabilitative programs, we would not just be better off for ourselves as a, as a nation and save massive amounts on prison expenses, but we would actually help to bring stability and reduce organized crime throughout the entire hemisphere. But are you saying that to stop, not to stop criminalizing, but to stop criminalizing as much problems and not as punitive, but more as a restorative process actually works better? Yes. What I actually would, my own convictions, what I think we should do, I, I don't think marijuana should be criminalized at all. Even large Amounts like, yeah, I think that it should be legal and then taxed, and then the tax money should be put towards good uses that bring restoration. I don't and haven't and won't smoke marijuana. I don't think that Lemuel passage that I read earlier, it's like I think that we ought to focus on you don't have to support marijuana in order to think criminalization is a big problem. You don't have to think it's like a beneficial thing to think it's worse to criminalize it than it is to regulate it, tax it, and use that money towards something productive. Because cartels get a majority of their funding from marijuana. I've seen the statistics before, I don't remember off the top of my head, but a ton of marijuana money ends up in organized crime. And it's all a cash-based system and the fact that people have to transact because banks don't enter into those deals. So people have to carry massive amounts of cash to buy and sell marijuana on the, the drug trade. And when you're carrying around massive amounts of cash with other illegal people, it leads to all kinds of violence because people are trying to rob each other and steal suitcases full of cash. And it leads to crime that other people get caught up in. It, it also, the whole marijuana drug, people talk about marijuana as a gateway drug. It's proven not to be a gateway drug for right. people. But it is a gateway drug for drug dealers. Drug dealers oftentimes start out by selling marijuana and only then start to get into higher profit margin drugs, like harder drugs that they sell. So marijuana actually is an entryway for people who will get convicted for marijuana possession, sent to prison, get out of prison with no hope of getting a job because they have this conviction of marijuana possession. And then they'll oftentimes have to end up selling other drugs. Or I guess they don't have to, but that's what is kind of like, who can blame them if you can't get another job to support your family other than selling other drugs? So it, it becomes a counterproductive, massive failure to try to criminalize marijuana. And then other drugs, I think, should any drug that's actually addictive... I think we should have a lot more regulations and protections around and it should only be available in a legal way in conjunction with like a treatment program that is therapeutic and has a mental health angle that's attempting to help people get off of it. But I think that even there, there shouldn't be penalties for possession. If there is criminalization, it should be on just on the sales side. But the most drug offenses in America today are for possession. We're going to get into this later, but kingpins, like the ones who we actually think in our heads that the drug war is really attempting to catch, those people tend to have a lot of money, a lot of drug money that police departments can confiscate. There's something called civil forfeiture where police departments can take money if it's associated with drug trade. Right. Those people, drug kingpins... Now, what do they do with that? They, they can use it for their funding. Like The police departments actually get the money that they confiscate through civil forfeiture. But drug kingpins don't always have all the money readily available where the police you know, know where it is. So drug kingpins can actually buy down their sentences by turning over drug money. And there's studies on this that have shown that, I'll, I'll get into the statistics later, but they can basically, for every $50,000, I think, have, journalists have found that they'll buy down their sentences by six years. What? And so what ends up happening is drug kingpins don't actually end up getting locked up for very long. 
because they'll buy down their sentences with drug profits, whereas people who are poor and are caught for possession are the ones who bear the brunt of the war on drugs. So that's how Wilson, Wilson Fisk don't ever go to jail, basically. Yep. Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wilson Fisk stays out of jail because he buys him. And yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the reality of the war on drugs in America and the, the incentives that we have that are all twisted. And we're going to get into that more. Well, and you're episode. talking about addiction. Cigarettes are more addictive than marijuana. Mm-hmm. Alcohol can be more addictive than marijuana. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, it is proven not to be a gateway drug. The only reason why it has been bad for so long is because it's a natural plant that people can grow and assess. Like people can grow marijuana themselves, but you know, it's a cheap drug for minority poor people. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. No one should be in prison for marijuana. No one should be in prison for weed. If that's the case, they should be in prison for cigarettes, nicotine, mm-hmm. or alcohol. But you only get put in jail for alcohol if you're driving and hit somebody. Mm-hmm. Or if you're driving drunk and, you know, you have an accident or you get caught. But it's just crazy to me because, again, we can go through all of these statistics about I mean, which is great information, but ultimately, marijuana, cannabis needs to be legal. Yeah, people who are drunk oftentimes become violent, but cannabis does not make people violent. Alcohol has more health, negative health implications, more right. risk of DUI accidents. It's basically, in every measurable way, more harmful than marijuana. And there's a story in Texas, and there's several stories as people are trying to legalize cannabis where it helps cancer patients, it helps people with pain, neuropathy pain, it helps with anxiety. There are medicinal strains that help with anxiety and depression. Marijuana medicinally has so many benefits that a lot of even other prescription drugs don't have. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it can be used as an alternative to prescription drugs that are more addictive. Exactly. I'm like struggling. I'm imagining a person is thinking, okay, I'm a Christian and it feels weird to be like, let's legalize marijuana. You know what I mean? That feels weird to say. It feels weird because... It feels weird in white America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Why, if what you're saying is true, that decriminalizing it would actually benefit everyone in every way... I guess the only thing it wouldn't benefit are the people that are currently benefiting off of this broken system. Right. Which is what we we don't want bad people to benefit from bad systems. So mm. that seems clear. But if you're saying to not uncriminalize it, but to decriminalize it in every way would benefit everyone in every way, why am I struggling with that? Because of the social... How we've been socialized, like he said, but also think about it. If if Wilson Fisk can buy his way out of prison time, and he's the one that needs to go to prison because of his mass production and distribution, he's the one with the big bucks. The little man who's buying it on the street should not be going to prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's just simple. Or let's just say the Sackler family drove and created the opioid crisis. And walking away from it with no prison time and billions of dollars and legal immunity where they can't be sued anymore. Like, right. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm using Wilson Fisk. I know he's not real. <laughs> but well, that, that's who I think about. It paints the picture. <laughs> but yeah, so to answer your question, though, to get into that, we're going to talk about the history of how we got here more. But much of how we got here was overtly racism. Right. And And so that's... How did we get to the place where we are right now? And why are our assumptions our assumptions? Why is America different from every other country? It was a path of racism that got us to our current system. Our current system is officially colorblind. It doesn't, we don't say we're locking up black people and not white people. And white people do go to prison for drug crimes. But the system has racist origins. So we're going to have to get into that more and talk about how that worked. It's, it's more nuanced than what I'm going to summarize right now. And real quick, if white people are having social parties and they're having drinks and they're, you know, they're drinking alcohol, how is that? Like, I think it comes down to Christians being evangelicalized 
from America to think this is bad, bad, bad. This is good, good, good. Mm -hmm. They get together and have parties and they drink. What is, how is that different? Yeah, but the other, the other aspect of it is the incentive system right now for politicians because every politician wants to be tough on crime because mm-hmm. that's a winning issue. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to let people out of prison and then have crime go up because if that happens, then you get blamed for the rise in crime and you don't get voted back in. And so politicians have an incentive to outdo one another in locking people up. The problem is that violent crime always was treated harshly. Right. Like before the war on drugs, we already were locking up violent criminals. So violent criminals, criminals who are actually like, you know, raping and murdering people, those were already harsh sentences. And I mean, I argue in in some of those cases that for sexual assault, I think we should sentence more harshly. Exactly. But those were already treated harshly. So then all of a sudden taking a bunch of low-level drug offenders and locking them up has had very little or no effect or even many, we'll get into some of this later, but a counterproductive effect on reducing crime. Crime has come down in America in the age of mass incarceration. And sometimes that can confuse people to think that mass incarceration is working. But what they don't realize is crime has fallen by as much or more in every industrialized nation. So as poverty goes down, crime goes down. Exactly. Mass incarceration, though, has actually not been what's driving the reduction in crime because it's, crime is reducing everywhere in, in every industrialized nation. And so people, I think, think or politicians fear that like, hey, I don't want to end mass incarceration because if crime goes up, I'll look like I'm soft on crime. And so they continue the system when actually the system is not working. But also, when you're thinking from a political standpoint, mass incarceration is labor, is the labor force for JCPenney. When you're talking about these work release programs where people are making, like you said, a couple of bucks, mass incarceration funds private prisons. And when people get out of prison, they can't vote. It keeps those people groups at a certain social class because they can't get jobs. It's more than just about, I'll look bad, you know, with the the war on drugs and the war on crime. Mm -hmm. There are so many moving parts to this that we don't think about that still benefit politicians. Mm -hmm. But the important thing to note, though, is that it doesn't actually reduce crime. And, And part of the logic is that it's just not effective to give long prison sentences to people who are trying to cope with trauma through drug use. Because they're not thinking about what's going to happen 10 or 20 years from now. They're thinking about how do I survive the the pain that I'm feeling right now. And here's a short runway out is I can use this drug and there's not a social support system to help me actually like pursue health. So here's what I'm going to do to try to escape from my pain. And the threat of these way out in the future consequences doesn't mean much. So a lot of scholars think that we've passed a point where the diminished returns of increased imprisonment have gone past zero and that we're actually that it's counterproductive because it rips apart fragile social networks, it destroys families, it leads to children whose fathers are absent. It creates a permanent class of unemployable people who then are more likely to have to pursue crime because they can't get a, a job. And unemployment is, is a big predictor of who's going to participate in illegal activity. Also, just the illegal nature of drugs creates all kinds of victimization for people who are addicted to drugs. Women who are addicted to drugs oftentimes are sexually abused because the seller of the drugs knows that they can take advantage of the woman because she's participating in an illegal activity and can't call the police while she's high. So it creates this system where abuse and abusive people is allowed to be perpetuated. It takes advantage of the desperation of poor people and addicted people. It stigmatizes them so that they don't have a way to pursue the actual social connections that produce meaning in life and and can actually be the way out of mental health problems. The actual solution of what we need is social connection, but prison rips apart social connections. 
So a lengthy prison term may actually increase the odds that reentry will be extremely difficult, leading to relapse and re-imprisonment. About 30% of released prisoners are re-arrested within six months of release. It's because of how difficult we make re-entry. And within three years, nearly 68% of people end up back in prison. That's not great. More than a third of prison admissions are a result of parole violations. So just like technical parole violations. And many of those are just people missing appointments because they're not organized or can't afford a bus fare to get there. Uh, This is a quote from the book Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. If you fail after being released from prison with a criminal record, your personal badge of inferiority to remain drug-free, or if you fail to get a job against all odds, or if you get depressed and miss an appointment with your parole officer, or if you cannot afford the bus fare to take you there, you are sent right back to prison, where society apparently thinks millions of Americans belong. And the Equal Justice Initiative has this quote, More incarceration doesn't reduce violent crime. Using prisons to deal with poverty and mental illness makes these problems worse. People leave overcrowded and violent jails and prisons more traumatized, mentally ill, and physically battered than they went in. Mass incarceration does nothing to reduce violent crime because violent crime already receives large sentences. Mass incarceration increases penalties for nonviolent and drug crimes. And then today, nearly 10 million Americans, including millions of children, have immediate family members in jail, or they're currently in jail or prison. And more than 4.5 million Americans can't vote because of a past conviction. Okay, so I think we can end this first part by, I want you to answer two questions. First question is, I'm a Christian, and it's hard for me to feel compassionate sometimes towards the way that I was brought up, the way that society tells us to think about things, the way that, you know, tons of factors. It's hard for me to be compassionate towards when I see something on TV about someone that was caught with drugs or someone that got arrested with weed or, you, you know, I just hear some story. Like, how do I fix that? How do I become more compassionate <laughs> towards people just in general, but specifically people that are being criminalized in, in more sense than just the literal criminalization, but like they're just being like completely like devalued and it's hard for me to be compassionate towards them. And then the second thing I'd love for you to answer is just like, where are we going to go from here? What's the next episode? What are we going to dive into? Yeah. So I think that the first thing is just to realize that you don't have compassion and that that's not actually good. The first thing is just to desire to come to a place of compassion. And for most people in America, we have just been you're like the fish in the water that doesn't know that he's wet because water is just everywhere. We are in a system that demonizes criminals and people who use drugs and doesn't consider what they're going through and doesn't consider what they've endured or what they've gone through. And we conflate violent crime with nonviolent crime and with drug crime. And we put everyone in this basket of like scary subhuman monsters. Yeah. And that's not good. It's not true. It's counterproductive. First thing to realize is just that that's how you feel and that that's like a problem, that you need to have growth and compassion. And then you can pursue compassion. Like you can't pursue it until you know that it's a problem. But then once you realize that it's a problem, you can start to pursue compassion. I think some ways you can do that is by getting intellectually informed. And so a good resource for that would be the book I just quoted, Michelle Alexander's book, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. But then a resource I've recommended before and continue to recommend is the Serial podcast has a season three that kind of interviews and goes into the stories of people who are experiencing the criminal justice system and encountering it. I think that's a good tool. Just like learn the stories of people who have gone through the criminal justice system to see what it looks like from somebody who's actually experiencing it. And then... I mean, all the the verses that we read earlier, I think just that reminder that our call is to love people and that as you do to the least of these, you do to me. And like, who do you think the least of these is talking about? Like, you think there's people who are low enough that you get to not love them, that you get a pass to not love them. That is factually incorrect. Whatever you do to the least of these, whoever you're least inclined to love is precisely who you need to be loving and elevating the most because as you do to these you do to Jesus like that's what he claims and so 
you need to reorient your goals and your goal needs to be love and compassion and empathy. So in the next episode, we're going to get more into the history of how the drug war started and looking at some of the quotes from Nixon advisors and the, the people who were there in the room that were making the decision of how do we I'm assuming start this those thing. are not going to be great. They're, those not, are, they're not going to be great. There's going to be a lot of racism happening. And then we're also <laughs> going to talk about just how it works, what the incentives are for police departments. Many people would be surprised that initially police departments were actually not on board with the war on drugs. Initially, only 2% of the population understood or thought that drugs were a problem. So we're going to see how over time that shifted and how political frenzy and advertising and marketing convinced America that, that drugs were public enemy number one. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. For $5 a month, you can help support the show and vote for future topics. So check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will continue discussing mass incarceration. We'll leave you with this quote from Brian Stevenson. We have a system of justice in the U.S. that treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth not culpability, shapes outcomes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.